workforce and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines like The Great Resignation to successful series like The Office and Silicon Valley to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll explore the contrast between constraints and choices, efficiency and enjoyment, and metrics and meaning. Please welcome to the show our first ever vision creator and the founder of Contrast Design, Larissa Murphy. Larissa, welcome to the show all the way from Singapore. Thank you, Karen. It's great to be here. Really fantastic to speak to you. Well, one question I like to start the conversation with every guest is what was your first paying job and what did that job teach you about the world of work? I think my first paying job was in a bar and <laughs> well, I was a student and I think it taught me a lot about people and interactions between people um, and how people relate to each other, how people communicate to each other, obviously in a very social setting with groups, how people interact, how people can reach out to include new people in groups and so on. It's, it's a very interesting place to work. And you get to talk to a lot of different characters. People would come in, especially on the afternoon shifts, and sit at the bar alone and, you know, just want to chat and you'd hear about their lives and backgrounds. So it taught me a lot about people. How do you read a room? I mean, people listening are doing this all the time. You know, you go into the high stakes meeting and they're doing a version of what happens to you when you walk up to a table. I mean, how do you read a room or a group of people? Um, I think I think it's partly instinct and I think maybe that's good too and I think maybe that's why the bar job helped me because you have to you have to be able to read people especially in a bar in the north of England where it's not always polite people <laughs> and you have to be able to anticipate if there's going to be problems if there's going to be trouble if the mood is changing so it really did teach me some great people skills. So when I'm in meetings and stuff, I can manage to speak, present, but also observe simultaneously and ensure that people are engaged. And I think that's very important. That early job of reading the room and working in a restaurant. And now you have, I think the coolest title I've seen in a long time. You're my first vision creator. What is that? And how does one become a vision creator. This is a really interesting story. So I started life as an architect and I work as a designer and I spe specifically work in workplace. And over the years, I've done a lot of research and study about creativity because it's something that interests me and through hiring process of, you know, recruiting people and so on, trying to find the right talent and trying to be able to determine who is creative and who isn't and how to spot it, like how to read the room, but how to read creativity. Um, and so when we were discussing internally that, you know, when we set up the company initially, myself and my business partner, Ivy, we decided that although, you know, legally we're directors of the company as all business owners and directors are directors, um, we said, director, 
kind of implies that you're dictating to people. You're directing people, you're telling them what to do and how to do it and controlling everything. And that's not the environment we wanted to create when we work. We work in a very collaborative fashion. So we said, we don't really direct. What we do is we take on board everyone's information and we create. So initially when we founded Contrast, we were both co-creators. But as our business has evolved, we've realized that our skill sets are very, very different. So we're still both creators, but we've realized that I'm really at the front end of things. I'm the one doing all the research, formulating the vision, coming up with the creative ideas. And so I'm really the vision creator, and that's how that title came about. Um, Ivy's role is very different to mine now as we've evolved. And so her title is also creator, but she's the reality creator because she gets things done. She gets things built. I have the vision, she makes them real. <laughs> Which is a winning partnership, right? Finding people who have complementary strengths. And what you said got me thinking, what would happen if we all changed our titles to what we create? And I'm, I'm curious, you talked about tapping into creativity. And I'll hear people say, and I'm sure you do too, well, I'm not the creative type. Is that true? Is there such a thing as just the creative type and not the creative type? Or can we all be the I think in, 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 psycho in psychology terms, yes, we're all, all born with creativity. And what the research has shown is that children under the age of five, 95% of them can achieve genius level creativity, 95%. By the time we hit our early mid twenties, only 3% of the adult population can achieve genius level creativity. So something happens between being under five and being 25 um, to remove it from most of it. I think it's society conditioning partially. A lot of people, a lot of studies suggest that education systems um, and so on. And, but I think it's also part of your innate personality, you know, to be able to resist the temptation to conform to, you know, be kind of have a desire to conform to fit in to blend in i think people who have that kind of people pleasing mode probably lose their creativity faster because they want to adapt they want to you know become acceptable in society whereas people who tend to not care about others or maybe have bad social skills <laughs> tend to be able to hang on to their creativity a little bit longer because they simply don't care what others think or they don't feel that pressure to conform or be normal or be accepted. When you're talking about creativity, it also makes me think about innovation. And right now we hear leaders in organizations of all sizes talking about the need to create new choices or, or innovate into the future of work. How do you help leaders and individuals within the organization access their creativity in new ways? I mean, how do we it's, get it, unblocked? <laughs> it is quite challenging. And I've done a lot of work on the psychology front. And actually, I work with one of the I guess lecture at one of the universities here uh, on an organizational psychology course and it's really interesting to get the feedback of the students and the kind of younger generation coming into the workforce about how we can engage on that level and how we can make sure that the next generation of employees are going to have more creative skills, more ability to innovate, to adapt, to change, 
um, faster. When you work with existing organizations, I did a project last year in India, a couple of years ago in India, and you know these they were a creative agency, but all the senior management there had been with the company for 30 years. So the diversity of their experience was non-existent. Um, and I think that informs creativity a lot. You know, you need uh, a lot of sort of very different sources, information and so on. So it was really a challenge to get them to think beyond what they had now when it came to the workplace and how the future might look for the workplace. And they were very resistant to change, very resistant to change. But through a series of workshops, I always find that it's best for people to have these realizations for themselves rather than for us to go in there and dictate. So we tend to run a series of workshops with the leadership initially to understand what their ideas are, what their visions are. We get them to play some silly games that sometimes they feel a bit uncomfortable about, but eventually they kind of break it down and get involved. And then we run a different set of engagement sessions with employees, and then we bring the two together. Very often what the senior people think is very remote from what the people on the ground think, and they have a completely different impression. And this is really an eye-opener for them because, you know, you've got a bunch of young recruits have come on board in the company and this is their impression. And you've got the people who've been there 25, 30 years who think everything is wonderful because it's their baby and this is how it's always been and they don't want anything to change. And then suddenly they start to wake up and think, gosh, we really have to change. We have to do things differently. We have to you know, get with the program, speed, speed up our own adaptation. And that can be a really positive step in kind of transformation and transition to looking at the workplace and doing something new. But none of it happens without that level of engagement with you know, people at all levels. You can't just go talk to the CEO or the MD and say, you know, what's your vision for the workplace? Oh, let's get creative. Let's workshop with you. And, you know, it, it just fails miserably. You have to have the data coming from so many different sources to be able to pull it all together to then feed it back to them to make them really think and to push them out of their comfort zone too. Well, you're highlighting two very practical ways to access greater creativity and it sounds like the first practical step every person can take to access or at least have some inputs to greater creativity is to have the broadest and most diverse set of experiences possible you know try different things be exposed to different people the second one you hit there is critical which is listening Right. You're talking about listening as a strategy to create choices and close gaps between what employers are willing to offer and see as the vision and what employees expect. And sometimes those are very different. So tell us more, because this is the crux of the conversation in so many ways about the future of the office and the workplace. What are some questions that leaders need to be asking right now? of their employees and deeply listening to the answers to guide this creativity and construct a different kind of workplace? Well, I think, I think the fundamental thing is, you know, people feel better, perform be better, are more productive when they have a certain degree of control about themselves. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted that, you know, when we all started working from home, people took back control over their lives. They worked when they wanted, they, you know, they took care of their family when they wanted, they, they juggled it all, but on their own terms, because they were doing everything from home. 
And I think many people thought that gave them a sense of control back over their lives. And I think that element of I'm an individual and I should have control over my own environment, over how I want to work and where I want to work and what's right for me, rather than the standardization of you come to the office, you will get a desk, you will get a chair, it will be the same as everybody else's <laughs> and you will be uniform and standardized. You know, that's never going to get the best out of people. Um, because I think what we ha what's got to change, the fundamental thing that's got to change is we've really got to think about employees. Instead of us thinking about them as one homogenous group of employees where we collect data and the law of averages rule, but the interesting thing about the law of averages is nobody's average. There's people at either extremes which make the average, but nobody is at that average. So build for that and you're going wrong. You have to respect that everyone is an individual. And you have to take all those individual viewpoints and pull them together. So as a leader, I think it's very important that leadership is a visible, they reach out, they engage, they don't dissociate and, you know, sit back and expect everything to be wonderful or expect everyone to agree with their vision. I think also one of the big things that is different, I think over the last 10, 20 years, we've seen workplace transformation and we've seen many things happen that are kind of counterintuitive and counterproductive. So we see the big you know, tech organizations where they, and it started with banking, they used to do it back in the kind of 90s, um, where they provide everything an employee could possibly need in the workplace. So the employee never has to leave. I remember designing a trading floor back in London many years ago, and their big panic was that if traders left the building, they may not come back or they may be downtime and they would lose you know, large sums of money. So the idea was keeping them captive, keeping them there as long as possible. If they needed to leave their desk for anything, go to for a dentist, doctor's appointment, it was all provided on site. So they never had to leave the building and it maximized time. And the problem with that is it also limits their ability to interact with others. Other than the people who work with, who do the same thing. And then you get into this silo mentality and unfortunately, I think, you know, the whole concept of like, you know, the Google office or the tech company office where breakfast is provided, lunch is provided, dinner is provided. So you don't go out for dinner with a diverse range of people. You sit in the office and have dinner with the people you work with all day. You're not getting that, you know, really divergent source of information, which all feeds into creativity. And so I think that is the wrong direction you know, that workplaces need to go. And it's fine to have friends at work, but we need to expand our social circles. To You're busting them. a myth. I mean, this is a very popular myth. What's positioned as convenience is really at its core a strategy that keeps people captive and constrains their creativity. Yes. Yes. It is, and it, it, it's linked. I mean, you look at anybody who's really ingenious, really creative, they will tell you that their creativity stemmed from the fact that they failed, they failed, they struggled, you know, they tried multiple things, multiple different ways, different business ideas, different work streams. You know, they will have reached out and have a broad spectrum of experience. There's also studies that show that people with higher level creativity have a more expansive social network, which is more diverse than people who don't. So these things are important. And I think many organizations don't realize that because they're looking at the economy of getting people. If you offer people breakfast, they'll come in for breakfast. They'll be in the office longer, so they'll be more productive. Maybe you'll get more hours out of them. Whether that comes to 
more productivity, I don't know. And anyway, productivity is not really that relevant anymore. A computer, a piece of technology is more productive than a human being. We cannot beat them. We are not as efficient. So what really sets us apart and in the future what we need, like most business leaders are talking about, is the ability to create, to ideate, to innovate. And along those lines, you know, ideate and innovate, you were talking about the individual and not designing or resisting the urge to design to the average. You said, you know, people are not average, they're individuals. Some would tell you it's impossible to design for the needs and wants of all the individuals inside of an organization. That's impossible. What would you say to them? I mean, can you make the impossible individual scope creep become something that's I think I would agree. You can never please all of the people all of the time. Yes. So that is impossible. You can never design for absolutely everybody's every single whim. But what you can do is incorporate enough variety, enough choice, um, and enough flexibility to allow people to choose. Then if you create working environments where people say, well, I want to sit here because I like this environment, or I like a low lighting level, and I don't need 500 looks to get my work done because I'm 20 and my eyes function really well, where someone else over there says, well, I'm 55 and I need super bright light because my eyes are not so great anymore. Because these things are natural phenomena. Our eyes need more light as we age. So, you know, even just light levels, having standardized light levels across all workplaces is crazy because it doesn't suit everybody. You just need to create variety and pockets of different lighting levels. It's the same with everything else. If there's enough variety and people have the freedom to choose, then great. And you may have to adapt and work because some things may be popular and oversubscribed and other areas may be dead. And you know, there's no formula as to how to get it right. I've worked for years working on the mathematical side of things, working on ratios of, you know, how many meeting seats you need per employee. Um, you know, if, if we're going to agile or hybrid working where people, you know, have flexibility to work from home some days, you know, what is the number of desks we need to provide? All these metrics I have discovered, having spent years doing spreadsheets, calculating them, are essentially good for a basis, but you have to balance them with human perception and what? with engagement and what people say and what people believe. Because if you tell somebody, we're cutting desks because you only use your desk 60% of the, or the office is only full 60% of the time, or only, there's never more than 60% people in, so we can cut 40% of desks. But people say, but I come to my, my desk every day. Even if you can prove, and we have data, and we've been through this exercise, and you can prove to them, actually, look, I have the data for your desk, and it's only occupied 40% of the time. They'll say, no, the data's wrong. The sensor wasn't working. You know, you can't alter their perception. <laughs> you can maybe move them 10, 15, 20%, but you won't get them 100% of the way. And I think that's the balancing act that we have to do. We have to balance humanity, human perception, the individual, their concept of their world versus the data and so on that technology allows us to pull in. And it's, it's, a, it's a fun job. Hybrid work. Employees want it, employers need it, and everyone has questions. When done right, facilitating flexible work can be a win-win for everyone. Happier employees, engaged teams, and better business outcomes. Robin is here to make the logistics easy. Our all-in-one workplace experience platform helps thousands of companies reimagine their approach to work. To learn more about how we make hybrid work work, visit RobinPowered.com. 
You talk about the metrics and we've all heard these phrases like what's inspected is respected, you know, and you need to be able to measure some kind of return on what you're doing. What are better metrics that leaders could be using to measure a successful office now or what employee engagement means now? Are there better metrics that we could I think, be I, I, think, I think there are better metrics. I think um, generally, I think measuring people's satisfaction levels, measuring, and these, but the thing is nobody measures these things because they're hard to measure. You know, everyone can measure the air quality because you can bring in a device to measure it and then say, look, we're a great employer because we make sure your air quality is really good and we measure it. You can measure things like, you know, electricity consumption or we're really good to the environment because we've driven down. But measuring things like human happiness, human satisfaction, these are more challenging. Um, but there is our ways and means to do it through observe observational studies of patterns of utilization which is what we often use because we can often then balance and, and, and a huge process of engagement. I mean, I worked for a very large client here with 800 staff in an office building and the engagement process, we spoke to 500 of those staff, actually physically face-to-face -face spoke to 500 of the 700 staff. So that's the kind of level of engagement we're talking about. And we, did, we didn't do it all one-to-one, -one, obviously, there were workshops and so on, but that huge amount of data from people's perception then can be balanced against the data you get from the sensors and so on. And then you can start measuring what people like, what people don't like, how their behaviors suggest something different to what they might tell you, you know, because you can actually through utilization studies and we, we use infrared technology. We have a partner company here in Singapore where we use um, infrared sensoring and heat sensoring so we can see how people move around the office. We can't track individuals. There's no privacy infringement, but we can see where groups cluster, where people move apart, where people work in isolation. So we can see all these patterns and we can see what the proportions are of how people are working and how they like to work. And we can then balance that with what they tell us. So it's a balancing act. It's about striking that balance. Let's say someone listening decides to undertake a space study. They decide to get curious about when and where do people gather or isolate, and then they decide to use that data to get more curious. What are three great questions any leader or organization could ask employees and teams as a follow-up to that observational data about how the space gets used? So we use some interesting questions that we always work in our workshops. So one of the questions we ask people is, where do you have your best ideas? It's a great question. Okay, because then, you know, it's interesting too, the differences you get um, in different companies, in different cultures. I've run a lot of these workshops in India and a lot of them in Singapore. And the cultural differences are kind of interesting. In India, I would say 70% of the responses are in some form of mode of transport, on the bus, on the train, in the car. And that's because the traffic is so bad in India, people spend a lot of time there, but it's a lot of time just sitting. So that's the time when their mind is free to have ideas. Um, in Singapore, people will tell you wherever I can plug out, you know, wherever I can distance myself. Uh, a common one is anywhere where I'm not, when I'm not working, usually the idea pops into my head. So. <laughs> 
So, you know, that's a really great question for leaders to ask. Where, where do you have your best ideas? Because then that will help determine what kind of environment are inspiring people or what kind of, you know, situation is in, inspiring people. Like in India, it's the people sitting in their cars stuck in traffic, their mind can wander and, you know, they can daydream and that facilitates their best ideas. Um, so it's a, that's a really good question to ask people. I think the other thing leaders can do is to, to understand fully the expense of individuals. You ask people, what time of the day are you most productive? Is it morning? Is it evening? Is it last thing at night before you go to bed? And we use this a lot when we work with organizations where the leaders are very traditional and very attached to, you know, a nine to five or nine to six office environment and the concept that people work different hours are like, but once they start realizing, wow, look, 70% of my staff have their best ideas first thing in the morning or last thing before they go to sleep. Gosh, it's not while they're in the office. <laughs> so, you know, then it's like, well, should we start considering nap pots? You know, so should people be allowed to go to sleep during the day? And then maybe while they're chilling out, relaxing, just about to fall asleep, they'll have those ideas when they're at the office and then they can work on them. Um, so these are kind of questions that you don't necessarily think people are going to ask when you're talking about workplace, but it really is about where people have good ideas and where people feel most comfortable. Where do you feel most comfortable in your life? If you had a choice to work anywhere in the world, where would you pick? And then once people get the answers to these questions, I mean, one of my favorite quotes is don't let your learning lead to knowledge, let your learning lead to action. So once we have studied the space and how people use it and asked your three very insightful questions of, you know, where do you get your best ideas? When do you get your best ideas? And what's your ideal work environment if there were no constraints? How do you build an action plan? I mean, where do you go from there so that that information ultimately leads to impact? So we do a whole piece on strategy. So we gather all the information and we gather all the data that we gather, both from, you know, human engagement and also from other data streams if they're available to us. Um, and then we compile, you know, we do a lot of calculations. So unfortunately, there are still a lot of calculations involved so that we can work out what kind of environments we need. But the difference about these calculations are they're not rules of thumb. They are not ratios that you input the data and it's the same ratio, one size fits all. It's very much bespoke to each organization. And it will mean that the ratio of spaces we provide and the types of spaces we provide will be very different from organization to organization. Um, you know, we've just done a workspace where it's like maybe 40% of the space is social space. Um, and it's all different kinds of social, social space, but the actual focus space is then very much focus. So it, it's a very distinctive office because the two are very separate, but that's because that's what the employees told us. They need somewhere where they can go and fo focus, but ultimately the organization is a very social organization and they all like to hang out. So it's, you know, it, it's striving to get that balance in the space as well. So there's a whole piece that we have to do to gather the information, to analyze it all, to then work out the numbers and to go back and say, well, we think this will work. But we also, as part of that engagement, we still like to involve people in the process. Because if you come back at the end and say, yeah, well, you told us this right at the beginning and now we've gone and done all this and we've analyzed it and we're the experts and this is what you're getting. They'll go, I don't agree. I don't think that's gonna work. You know, so what we do is we have these constant workshops where once we've got the data, once we've got in our initial ideas, we feed them back and say, how does this feel? Does this sit comfortably with you? 
does it not? And we have lots of games we play in these workshops. We have, you know, image games and things like that that help us gather information through observation as well about how people interact with each other. Resistance is real. And, <laughs> uh, right? I mean, it's resistance to change. It's resistance to letting go of the nostalgia of how we've always done things. It's the resistance to coming back to the office. How do you help people work through resistance? Okay, so the thing that human beings are experts at more than anything else is our ability to adapt and change. The problem is we don't recognize that as one of our strongest abilities. So what you have to do is get people to understand just how much in, the, in a very short period of time they've adapted and they've changed and you know how their lives have changed and what has improved and what's disimproved and gives them the sense that they can take control over that. So what we often talk about is, okay, you think about how you worked five years ago. You describe to me how you used to work five years ago. Now, what in the world around you has changed in that five years and how has it impacted how you work now? Then once they look back and they think, oh my God, five years ago, we didn't really use mobile technology. You know, we had big desktops sitting on our computer you know, in our office and so on. We had to be connected to a server. We couldn't, you know, we didn't have cloud technology. And suddenly people start think, oh my gosh, the whole world's changed. The whole world has changed in that period of time. And think, have you survived? Has it been detrimental to you in any way? And then they kind of think, no, not really. We've, and that's what human beings always do. We constantly adapt. So I think we need to get over this fear. And I think actually, out of the pandemic, I'm actually quite positive. You see a lot of kind of doom and gloom mongers about the pandemic. I think the pandemic has been fantastic for humanity. I think it has, you know, the deaths and the illness side of things aside. And I know many people lost loved ones and that's very tragic. But for us to move forward, it has been a huge accelerator. You know, the workshops I used to run before the pandemic to help people understand what was changing, why it was changing and getting them on board to understand how they themselves could adapt and change were sometimes quite hard work, really hard work. Same group of people, same company during post pandemic. It's like, oh, well, overnight we all had to go working from home and everything changed and we've all survived it. So sure, yeah, we're open to doing things differently, open to changing what comes next. It could be fun. And I think there's been the pandemic has really re-inspired our sense of interest in the future rather than the, I think we were in a rut kind of looking with a lot of nostalgia at the past. And I think there was a whole era, maybe the last decade where we were really focused on the past. And I think the pandemic has really shifted our focus back to the future and given people the confidence that they can adapt. It's about the confidence that we can adapt and we can change. The fear only comes out of lack of confidence. One of the design principles you talk about quite frequently is design for a fidgetal future. What is fidgetal? What does that mean? And, and why does it matter? And how do we design for a fidgetal future? It struck me as part of the pandemic because working from home, like everyone else, most of our interaction became digital. So we would spend half our days joining calls and meetings and we would use various different systems. So for example, we would use Zoom or you know Microsoft Teams or Google Meet or m many other systems, um, those being the main ones. But what interested me was that pre-pandemic, 
if I went to a meet with a client, I went to meet with a client in their office. Walking into their office created a certain experience about their brand, their identity, who they are. Sitting in their meeting room gave me a feeling of what this organization is like. When you join one of these online meetings, you don't get that experience. You get the Microsoft experience, the Google experience, the Zoom experience. You don't get to experience the company you're interacting with. And I think, you know, there, there's a massive disconnect when we think about workplace. When we think about workplace, we think we create a physical space. So that's the physical bit of it. We create a physical space, but you can also create a digital space. And what we have to do is meld the two together. I think we can take inspiration from the retail world because they've done it very well. Back in the old days, everyone had a physical store. And the only way to go shopping was to go to the physical store. And you may chose the store because you like the ambience, you like the environment. You know, it, it was a nice place to shop, different image, different people like different things. But there was an actual physical experience. As we've transitioned to online shopping, many retail companies spend a lot of time and effort curating their online retail experience so that it's aligned with their physical stores. So there's that unity. You know you're in an Apple store, but you know you're on Apple's online store. You know, there's that unity. But workplaces, we're not doing that. They're still separate. There's a physical space, and then there's this kind of digital space that's created by a third party service provider and has nothing to do with who we are or our identity or what we're about. So for me, the digital space is we need to start thinking more holistically about the workplace. We need to stop thinking about it as a physical space with digital technology that helps it survive and work. We need to think about it as a physical space and a digital space, and both should come together to create the same experience. And that's digital. And I, I like your design principle of if, if you feel stuck or you don't know where to get started, look in the direction of retail. That's a lived experience we all share of the transformation of, you know, an in-store experience extending to a digital experience, extending to a customer experience that overall forms your perception of a brand and how you choose to interact. You know, at one point you may choose to still go to a physical store. At another point in your journey, you may choose to interact digitally. And at the end of the day, you can still be loyal to that brand. And what I'm hearing you say is really the same is true of employers, right? You can still be a brand or a workplace of choice and offer the flexibility and autonomy your employees need to do their best work and tap into their own creativity from anywhere. Exactly, exactly that, yes. Well, changing channels, people talk about the challenge of not having this break room, this water cooler experience. So I like to do a segment in the podcast called Take Five. So imagine we're gonna take five and now to tap into our own creativity, I've got five quick questions for you that will work okay. a little bit like a lightning round. So just say the first answer that comes to mind okay. for you. Are you ready, Larissa? I'm ready. <laughs> All right, first. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? An architect. Oh, you are living your childhood dream. That's fantastic. <laughs> I know, that's so rare. It is rare and good for you, and I'm a little jealous. <laughs> I think from about the age of five, that was the only thing I wanted to do. 
I used to help my dad build walls with concrete and had my own wheelbarrow. I used to dream and draw buildings and new ways to create buildings as a child. Proof that you can live your dream, even your childhood dream. Yes. I love that. All right. What is your favorite guilty pleasure office snack? My favorite guilty pleasure office snack, okay, has to be cheesecake for breakfast. Oh, that's <laughs> fabulous. Is there a certain flavor or topping or just any raspberry, cheesecake will do? Anything with raspberry in it. Raspberry and white chocolate cheesecake. cheesecake for breakfast. That's really, everyone in my office laughs when they're like, how does she eat cheesecake for breakfast? But I do, I love it. Good for you, good for you. All right, what's the best excuse you've ever heard or given for completely missing a meeting? Oh, completely missing a meeting. Um, turn, well, not completely missing it, turning up in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> um, was pretty embarrassing. Uh, I think I put it down to the fact that I was distracted by daydreaming. <laughs> And I told, I, I told the client that this would be to their benefit in the long term. <laughs> I am going to use that. And I encourage the listeners to do the same. I am delayed due to daydreaming. I'm tapping into my creativity. I'm technically doing work. I was actually working. I was actually working. What do you keep on your desk that inspires you? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Um... I don't find inspiration in physical objects. I find inspiration in my mind. So for me, a blank, an empty desk, a clean sheet of paper, actually a clean sheet of paper is the best thing, and a pencil. So I can just doodle what's in my imagination. That's where I get my inspiration. We've all used that phrase, right? Like let's imagine starting with a blank slate or a clean sheet. You literally do that for inspiration, which yes. I think is a great tip. I mean, it reminds us there's infinite possibilities. Well, it's true. When I was at uni, I had a nice lecturer who once told me that while we were there, we had pencil and paper and anything was possible. When you get into the real world, it's not so easy um, So to exploit this opportunity. I don't agree that it's not so easy in the real world. I think if you try hard enough, if you believe enough, if you want something badly enough, um, anything is still possible. And if you have that kind of childish wonder and excitement about all the endless possibilities and never allow you to allow people to tell you, oh, it's too difficult or it's impossible, then that fuels and, you know, creativity and is very inspiring, I find. And to whom are you most grateful for investing in your career? Ooh, tough question investing in my career, I would have to say my parents, um, because I guess they allowed me the freedom to be myself and encouraged it um, and never forced me to take any path or do anything I didn't want to do, which was a very brave type of parenting for their generation, I think. Um, it could have gone horribly wrong, <laughs> but it did. I guess they got lucky. <laughs> and maybe also my business partner, because I think she gave me the confidence and having, like we said at the start, you know, having somebody that is a complete, um, you know, opposite, but opposite to you, but with a similar goal in life so that, you know, you have that really complementary skill set. It kind of 
gives you all the bits of you that you're missing and the confidence that you can be kind of whole. So I really owe a lot to her because she's kind of made me so much better at who I am and what I do. And every day I work with her and every day I'm so grateful for the fact that she still puts up with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you are literally living your childhood dream and I took away and I know our listeners have also many practical and insightful tips from our conversation today. And creativity starts with getting curious, asking some new questions. And I loved the three questions you shared about where do your ideas come from? Where physically are you when they happen? What time of day or what circumstances do you get your best ideas? And if you could work from any kind of setting, where would you be at your best? You really reminded us about the link between constraints and choices and creativity and choices. And I love your thought that even if you got up and sat in one part of a physical office and stood in another part of physical office, even that would help you tap into your own creativity. I'd like to ask you one closing question when you think about the future of the office and what's possible, what's your biggest aspiration for how you will contribute to the future of work? That we will completely transform workplaces beyond recognition. I, it's like you mentioned, my favorite thing is we have to get rid of the soulless environment that people don't want to spend time in. If I can help create workspaces that people compliment us on and say because of this workspace i love coming to the office that's all i need to achieve and you know i've done a couple where i've had people come up to me and say we really love the space now it's so much better we enjoy it and when people say they enjoy it i think this is positive a workplace that people enjoy going to somewhere they want to be and you know with the clients we work with are generally clients that have those aspirations um, and want to create good environments for people. That's really my passion, just creating better environments for people. And creating better environments may begin as soon as changing your own title, at least mentally, to <laughs> yeah. whatever it is you're going to create. Yes. I don't know, maybe yeah. I'm, I'm podcast creator. I have no <laughs> idea. I have no, now I have to take it away and think. But... <laughs> Thank you to you, Larissa Murphy, the vision creator from Contrast Design for joining me today on Success From Anywhere because success is not a destination or a location. Success is available to anyone, anywhere, at any time.